Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller, the host of this program. I'm a collaborative family lawyer and mediator and the founder of the Miller Law Group, and I am on a mission to change how people divorce in New York. And part of that mission is this program and podcast on WVOX 1460 AM and having conversations with people involved in the divorce process as professionals, as people, as uh, ancillary professionals. And I'm here today with Steve Kaplan. He is a CPA accredited in business valuation practicing in White Plains, New York, where he maintains a dispute resolution focused practice. He provides business valuation, forensic accounting and tax services in collaborative practice, mediation, arbitration and litigation for matrimonial estate and gift economic damage, shareholder dispute and merger and acquisition purposes. That's a busy life, Steve. Yes, it is. But it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I hope to share some of what I do with you today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. And, you know, Steve and I have worked together on a number of collaborative cases over the years, and you've been involved in some mediations that I've been involved with as well. And and I thought that it might be a good idea if we talked a little bit about the financial neutral in, in a divorce setting. So what a financial neutral can do, what a financial professional brings to, to a divorce setting, the kinds of services that you and other people provide. And so then maybe we could talk a little about the the neutral role in that way as well. Does that make sense? That's great. That sounds like a great service to all your listeners. So Steve, you're a CPA, right? And that brings with it a certain level of education. And you know, we could probably spend the next 20 minutes kind of going through your certificates and licenses and education and all that sort of stuff. But I'm not sure that would be the most useful thing for us to talk about. But how do you bring that CPA expertise to a divorce setting? Well, I like to think that a CPA is under the umbrella of financial professionals because there are a lot of different financial professionals you could have within the financial arena. A CPA is known for verification. That's one of the core things we all have gone through. It's part of our training. We do a test work or audit work as a preliminary thing for us to get our license. So we're used to challenging people to make sure that we get the information that we need. We don't just accept information as it's given to us. We check to see, does it make sense? So we are inquisitive by nature. That's a, a part of our training and generally conservative too. So I think that most people in a divorce setting, they find that that gives them comfort because that's the type of thing that they're looking for. There's uncertainty. Yeah. And so we help unravel those type of things. Also, the interesting thing is many people think of CPAs as just putting together a whole bunch of numbers. But in some respects, in some of my work, I take numbers and I go the reverse way and I figure out what the story is behind the numbers. So it's almost like numeric storytelling. And mm-hmm. So it's well, a little bit different. I think what you're saying, you know, certainly one of the big pieces of a divorce is the finances, right? And so for people, they need to have a shared understanding of their economic reality in order to make any decisions about the finances, right? I and, think for sure. I think it's a truism that without understanding that you won't be able to get to the settlement. And that's an important role that a financial professional plays. Right. And that's the first step, really. Maybe it's not a shared understanding of the economic reality, but an understanding of the economic reality of the family is really one of the first steps in any divorce process, right? That's for sure. And also, sometimes it's that 
There's understanding, but at different levels within a couple. And sometimes there are dialogue issues. It can be very challenging. For instance, you have a couple, and if one spouse is in financial services, and that's something that's very prevalent here in the New York metropolitan area. So that person tends to talk with a lot of jargon, or just they have some pre-assumed notions as to how things should go or what things are. So it's the job of the financial professional in the case to be an educator. So yeah, so coming into the process, they're often the people and the, the married couple is often not in the same place in terms of understanding what there is, knowing what there is, and even to the extent they know, really knowing what that means, right? Yes, and, and so for that's sure. one thing that that you do is to help people understand their economic reality coming in, right? And yeah, so well, that's part to understand the, the reality also, but just to get them to a certain place so they feel comfortable engaging in a settlement discussion because until they have that level of knowledge, the other part that we try to do is to make sure that before the case concludes that both people feel that they could leave, both parties feel that they could leave the divorce and be independent and be able to take care of themselves. So we'll teach them necessary skills, perhaps introduce them to other people to work with them afterwards is one of the hallmarks usually of neutrals when we work in a collaborative setting or mediation is that we don't work with people afterwards. It's to make sure that our work is unbiased and pure mm-hmm. when we are working with them. So sometimes we have to set them up with people afterwards. It's not uncommon to find within a couple that there's one spouse who did not handle the finances and maybe they never did. So it's not unusual for me to find a client who's 55, 60 years of age, never ran the checkbooks, and there's a whole host of skills that they never had. And so we try to uh, educate them on things that they need to do. So there's a lot of different ways that we can help and all those things are necessary for them to feel comfortable and, and come to a settlement. Yeah, you know, when my uh, grandmother died, my grandfather had never written a check in his life. I mean, never written a check in his life. Pretty amazing, even at that time in the 70s. I still see that today. It, it's more in people in their 60s, late 50s. So you do see that less so for the millennial generation, so to speak, but something that's common and something that we're prepared to deal with. It's a part of our training. We've both been to some trainings where we talk about these type of things and understand what money means to people, how do they handle money, and so on. So those are some of the skill sets that we bring to the table. That's great. I want to go back to something that you said earlier. But before I do that, I want to remind people that this is Catherine Miller. You're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm speaking today with Steve Kaplan, a CPA and a financial professional in divorce settings of all different varieties. And one thing that you said earlier, I asked you about being a CPA and working in divorces. And you said, I think you used the word verification. Yes. We verify. And I really want to circle back to that because I think one thing that's really important and very common and a concern of people is mistrust, right? So oftentimes when people are divorcing, they feel a lack of trust for the other person, you know, either because there's been an affair or there's just been a decision to leave the marriage. And that sense of, I'll use the word betrayal, really, that this is not what I was expecting. You know, I can't trust you because you said you'd love me forever and now you want a divorce. Or there's been some kind of incident or behavior in the marriage that leads someone to feel really uncertain. And sometimes people feel like they need protection from that uncertainty. I think that the word you used, verification, what they need is verification that somehow or other they have all the information they need to make a decision that's fair to them and is informed. That's definitely the case. I think that once somebody finds out that somebody had some other life or, or there's something they weren't sharing with them, they also tend to think, well, if it's in this part of their life, 
then what's to stop them from believing then that it hasn't taken place in other elements of the life? So is it in the financial area? Sometimes looking at the finances verifies what the other spouse has said. Sometimes it reveals that something more has taken place. It started earlier. So you start going through the books and you see some questionable things earlier, but it all goes to understanding. And in order to do that, you have to feel comfortable and that you have the knowledge that you need. That being said, it's also important to be careful to not go overboard because sometimes people send you on what's almost a witch hunt and they want all kinds of little details. And that's often not helpful. One of the things that we need to do as a financial professional is temper people's expectations or what their desires are. It's not productive to spend a thousand dollars of time on a professional to find out about one little item. It's also incumbent on the financial professional to be able to realize what's material, what's not, what can be upsetting, what's not. If you see some things, but it really would not change the way the case would go down. So if I saw a trip to a florist every other month and it's because somebody has someone else in their life, you have to make a decision. It's important to disclose those things. So we have a, a fine line. I think more often than not, the information people want from us, though, is to understand, are there large sums of money that have disappeared? Is there another pot that they didn't know about? And you'll see that. And we start looking at those things so that they really understand that everything is there on, on the table. So the verification part is all about doing your homework. I think that's really interesting because mistrust is really malignant, right? I mean, once somebody feels mistrust on one thing, then that creates an anxiety and they start looking for other ways in which this person that they previously trusted might not be trustworthy. And sometimes, you know, the person who's then the recipient of the mistrust, right, that is the person who's not being trusted says, well, maybe I didn't tell the truth about that, but I would never lie about this. And they totally mean it. And so I think part of what you're saying that your role can be is to help sort of get some kind of rebalance that sense of where the ground is in terms of trust, what the facts are, and that you can really give some sense of comfort or the opposite of comfort, you know, some sense of justification that the mistrust is well-placed. Well, I'd say it's not all bad. It's not all about gotcha. Sometimes you go in there and the verification is that, you know what, this is a recent thing. And sometimes it just ties in with somebody had their middle of life crisis and that's where it started. You could look in all the books and you could see that in fact is what takes place. So my work is not always just to find negative, but it could also just to confirm what exactly. somebody has represented. So I think that's what you're getting at. It, it can be both ways. It's also, I'd say related to this, sometimes people ask, how can you do forensic or investigative work in a setting of collaborative or mediation? Both of those are two environments where we have an expectation of truthfulness, honesty, and so on. So let's just Let's just pause for a minute and explain for people what we mean when we say in a collaborative setting or in a mediation setting, if that makes sense, just sure. so that, that the conversation is clear. In collaborative divorce and in mediation, our voluntary non-litigation methods to resolve divorces and other kinds of disputes in a way that doesn't threaten to go to court and doesn't actually end up going to court, where the people utilize the services of a non-litigation team of lawyers, uh, financial professionals working in a neutral role and mental health professionals to really address each of the aspects of the unwinding and the transition of the family relationship. And in that setting, your role, Steve, as a neutral would be as mutually hired by the parties to help them find a resolution on their terms based on what's important to them and to sort of work through the issues that they have 
and try to find a reasonable resolution. Right. So what I'm getting at with that is one of the expectations of the parties coming into either one of those settlement processes is honesty, truthfulness, being forthcoming. So sometimes, though, I'm asked to do some forensic work. And so people ask me, well, is it kind of an oxymoron to do forensic in a settlement type of situation? And the answer is that sometimes forensic work can be just, we spoke about verification before. So sometimes both of the parties agree that something took place or, or a certain account was used wildly, but they'll differ. And somebody would say, well, we spent 75000 out of this account the last five years. The other spouse would say, no, it was $500,000. They're not really accusing anybody of chicanery or anything of that sort. They're just an honest disagreement. It's because one party or the other does not pay as much as attention. Sometimes people see things a little bit different and remember things a little bit different. So I'm still investigating or verifying things, but it's, again, it's not for the gotcha. It's really just to figure out what really took place to settle this disagreement. So it's not that it's an acrimonious difference, but it's mm -hmm. just an honest difference of opinion as to what took place. Well, it's getting to that shared understanding of an ec the economic reality, right? That it, it is what it is, and then and the money came from where it came from, and we just need to sort of find some way to figure that out in, in a way that doesn't feel like it is a gotcha or accusatory or, or defensive. And it's usually helpful when they find that it's coming from somebody who's neutral. I don't have any ax to grind with either party. I don't have any particular bias or anything of that sort. So usually it's a relief once it's been put out there, it makes it easier to get beyond that because then all those clouds that are swirling in people's minds and so on, all those things go away. All right. So I have a couple of questions to ask you about that. Before I do that, I want to remind people that this is Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm here every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30 on WVOX. And we're also a podcast that you can download on iTunes. I'm here talking today with Steve Kaplan. And Steve, I see also that you are a current executive board member of the Hudson Valley Collaborative Divorce Association. And I know that you're a former member of the New York Association of Collaborative Professionals Board of Directors, and that you are uh, also past president of the New York State Society of Certified Public Accountants Rockland Chapter, and a past member of the New York State Society of CPA's Statewide Professional Ethics Committee, and the list goes on. And so what I wanted to ask you about is how do you see your role as a neutral different in each of these different modalities of divorce? So how is it your role as a neutral in a litigated divorce different than it is in a collaborative divorce or in a mediation? Or is it? I think there are more similarities than not. But I mean, I think the most important thing first is objectivity. That's really what most people think about is not having any particular bias. So whether I'm doing something in the court and Sometimes my court work is because I was appointed by the court. Sometimes I was agreed by both parties. In my mediation work, it's on retention by both parties and the same thing in the collaborative work. In all those cases, I'm expected to do my work objectively and without bias. Again, that's one of those things that is a hallmark of being a CPA. Where there's some difference, I think, is that how clients or the parties and the attorneys see you because... Um, there's an expectation, of course, of objectivity when you're in court. But when you're working with the parties, it's important not just what your work shows, but even how they see you, right? So we take note even of how we position ourselves at the table when we speak to the parties. I'm not always speaking to Jane first or, or John first. And even in memos, I'm mixing their names back and forth. So it's evident different ways. It really has to become part of the fiber of how you do your work and addressing them. So they just seem like you're there as part of a, a team and that they don't see you 
doing things either more for one person or the other. It's important that unlike in court, because I put in a report, I may have to testify. And so there's not a whole lot of interaction with the parties. In mediation and in collaborative, I'm sitting there at the discussion table with the parties. Sometimes we'll have a a five-way or if we have a a coach in collaborative, we'll call it a a six-way because we have that mental health practitioner uh, presence. Sometimes even in collaborative, I might have a a meeting just with the two parties, whatever the case may be, I'm sitting there. So it's not just that I'm putting a report that needs to reflect that there are no biases, but they have to see it in action. They have to feel it. So it actually takes more work as a neutral professional to work on your neutrality. And some of that is a function of our training. We spend some time training on that, refreshing ourselves on that. So it's very important. And the neutrality really lends itself, I have to say, even beyond working on financial things. Sometimes in a case, we might spend two hours in a meeting, an hour and a half of it is financial. But I'm there in a meeting and people decide, well, we think Steve should stay for the last half hour because Steve's here is neutral. Maybe he could help us with the flow of the conversation or with their certain issues, whatever. So as people become comfortable with you, they feel that you truly are there, you can be an asset in another way. So neutrality in these settings is more than just being without bias. And it goes beyond being objective. It's really, it's the way you position yourself and the way that you're seen. Does that clarify things? I think it's actually, you know, my recollection from when I litigated and that I gave that up a number of years ago. So it could be a, it could be a foggy recollection, but my recollection of working with financials, either as neutrals or on the adversary team, is really that the, the, at least around finances, it's really about information gathering. Now, it may also be about presenting your case, right? You may be saying, okay, well, this valuation is right because X, Y, and Z, and this is my position, but you're the fact finder, right? Not the fact finder in the terms of the of the court right. being a fact finder, but you're the, the person. fact gatherer. You're fact gatherer, right? And presenter, right? And, and you're often, you know, presenting facts, and to the extent that those facts are part of a resolution, great, but you're not really part of the resolution finding team. And, you know, the overwhelming number of, of divorces settle in New York before a judge hands down a decision after a trial. So, you know, you may, you know, get all dressed up for the party and, you know, all ready to, to testify and probably a big relief when you don't actually have to I think it's it. all but uh, 4% of cases do settle. And I've had my share where I show up at the courthouse or where I get the call the night before and we settled it or sitting around all day and my opportunity to testify. Right. And so neutrality in that setting is really about objectivity to the facts, right? And about, okay, now with my training and my experience, I can look at the facts and I can see it means this, that, and the other thing, or maybe I need to, you know, see that like the flowers thing, maybe that means something, you know, maybe there's something in the numbers that I can share about what the facts are, but it's a little different than, I mean, that's part of the collaborative setting and also part of the mediation setting where you bring that level of objectivity so people can feel like, all right, now I can relax because somebody who's objective, somebody who knows something is going to look at this and reassure me that this is okay. But that's just phase one. But then in the collaborative mediation, then we have that other phase, which is we marry the goals and interests that the parties have expressed and to take those numbers and put it into action and have dialogue. And that's really where exactly. if you're truly neutral, people see it and feel it. And I think sometimes to prove to me, knowing if they felt that I was neutral is at the end of a case, one or both will say, will you help us endure a tax or return in the future or whatever? And as I said earlier, I'm not allowed to do that because we want to make sure that the work is biased and objective. And I'm not looking to set things up so that I can get some kind of gig in the future. But the fact that they ask means that they felt that you did things the right way. And usually if one 
party asks you to get from the other two, and, and that, that's yeah. comforting. It's a little ironic, actually, that in one way, we in the collaborative process really try to garner the sense of neutrality by disqualifying the professionals from continuing outside of the collaborative setting, right? But in some ways then, because they trust you because of that, of the rules, that then they want you to do something to go outside of it. And so- it's, It um, can be actually, it's liberating it as a professional. It makes it much easier than, you know, people, there's no reason for people to doubt you. It's easier to get your point across. Yeah. This is Catherine Miller. I'm talking with Steve Kaplan on Dialogue on Divorce. We're here every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30 on WBOX, 1460 AM and WBOX.com. And we're also a podcast on iTunes. And we're talking about the role of the neutral financial professional in divorces. Particularly now, we're talking about sort of the power, the magic of neutrality in collaborative divorce and in mediation. And I do really think of it that way, Steve, as a, as a magic of neutrality. When we as neutrals, and I speak for myself only as when I work as a mediator, because when I work in a collaborative team, I'm obviously a collaborative attorney and, and representing one person. But the role of neutral in a conflict resolution proceeding if the people are able to really both agree that they trust you, right, you or me yes. or, or whoever the neutral is, it really changes the conversation, at least that's my experience, and it changes that sort of tone in a way that really allows them to relax and start to be more creative about the resolution. There's also other things. As a member of the team, sometimes I'll hear things in meetings, and I have the opportunity after the meeting to speak to the other professional on the team and say, you know, I heard this as a neutral, something's striking me and there's a lack of balance here. So sometimes there's additional work I'm doing as a neutral that the parties might not see, but I'm also contributing a, another way. And is that sitting as a financial person, there are lots of things that aren't financial per se, but they still touch on the matrimony and all does come together, but the neutrality helps itself at the table in other ways. And the same thing, other professionals could say something to me if they thought that something wasn't right, whatever, and we all learn from our, our experiences. Well, it's really interesting that conversations about money are clearly about money. I mean, they're about a way to pay the bills, but money is so much in our society, so much more than a way to pay the bills. It's the way we judge each other. It's the way we judge ourselves based in relationship to our families of origin, our neighbors. Money is power. That's a, money a big is, one. And control. And so to the extent we have a financial neutral involved who can talk about the numbers, but also has experience and understanding what those money conversations can really mean outside of a way to pay the bills or outside of what's in the bank. And that that is just incredibly powerful. And sometimes I think that the kind of expertise and experience that you have, where you had so many money conversations over the years that you've been doing this, and I don't mean to date you there, but you know, really gives other professionals in the process the opportunity to get your experience about that. You know, when people say this, sometimes it means that, right? Yes, of course. And I think that's what you're sort of saying is true in your experience. I think people find it just very helpful. It, it does come down to money in a lot of cases. So any way that you can make a more comfortable playing field at the table, I think once that people feel that they have that comfort level, then you see the whole tenor of the case changes. That's what I observe. Once you get to a certain point, you can tell that you've reached everybody and that also that I've answered some of the things that are important to them and things go much quicker after that. So. Absolutely. What, what is the first step that you take to try to give people comfort that your role in the process is going to be helpful to them? First time I meet with the parties, and I have to emphasize that I encourage to have the initial conversation with both of them, not just one. If somebody calls me up, I'm 
calling on behalf of myself and my husband. I'll try to keep it strictly just to process and not get into the weeds of the details. So that's you know one of the most important things. But when I do have that first conversation with them, we discuss two things. One is my expectations of them, and also one is what is their expectation of me. It's easy to sit there and just talk about well. I, as a professional, can do X, Y, and Z, but it's more important first to listen to them. We have a conversation first about what it is that they're looking for. Why do you think that you were sent here by uh, the other members of the team? We have that discussion, and then we'll get into the things that I can do. So I think the important thing is to have that initial dialogue so that they understand um, what it is I can do compared to what their needs are. And so you have those fair expectations. We speak about how I would go about it. How much time does it take? And we don't avoid the conversation about cost either. And when you're upfront about all those things, that alone puts people at ease because there's no mysteries. Sometimes going through a court process, people have no idea where it's going to go, how long it's going to last, and how much it's going to cost. All right, that's really great. Thank you so much for joining us. I want us to give you a chance to say your phone number real quick before we end. Nine one four seven three three seven three four zero.